So if you remember a few months ago, a couple months ago, when we started this series, we talked about uh, God being a keeper of promises and how the gospel ties into that. And we started this series by talking about how sometimes what we think the word gospel means isn't really what the word gospel means. It isn't necessarily what the apostles meant. It isn't necessarily what Paul meant when he said the word gospel. If you got your Bible, we're, just before we get into our, our review, let's, let's review the first two verses of Romans. So Romans 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. God's gospel. God's euangelion, God's good news, which, this gospel, he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And so we talked about, but it's been a while, so I I want us to remember this, that Paul believes that the things that have come true are coming true and will come true because of Jesus. Let me say that one more time. The things that have come true are currently coming true and will, future tense, come true because of what Jesus has done at the cross, that these things were all, what was the key word there? Promised, right? These things were all promised where? In the Holy Scriptures, right? They were all promised beforehand in the Holy Scriptures. So we call that section of Scripture the Old Testament, right? So everything that Jesus has, is, and will accomplish was promised in the Holy Scriptures in the, in the Old Testament. Now, often what we think of as the gospel and what we think of as what Jesus has, is, and will accomplish doesn't really look like anything we read in the Old Testament, uh, so, so I think that that, rather than redefining the Old Testament, we need to redefine what we think of is the gospel. And what exactly is Jesus doing? What will Jesus do? What has Jesus done? What are these promises that are coming true in the gospel? God is declaring euangelion. He's declaring we've won. <laughs> we've been victorious. Jesus has given you victory. And my promises have are and will come true in Jesus. And so so what is that? We talked about passages like Isaiah chapter 11, and and that's a a messianic promise that that from the the root of Jesse, from the family of Jesse, which would be David, right? And then eventually Jesus, that from his family, it says the spirit of the Lord will rest upon this one, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He won't judge by what his eyes see, but he'll judge with righteous judgment. He will judge the, <laughs> I love this, he will judge the poor, right? What does that mean? Does it mean he'll like punish them? It means he will set them free. He will make them not be poor anymore. He will decide the equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And then it goes on to talk about how there will be an incredible peace and harmony between all things and all people that reminds us of what 
the garden, right? It reminds us of the garden. Wolf and lamb laying down together like all of these prey and predators at peace. Human beings, nations and kingdoms at peace. And then that the knowledge of the Lord, the knowledge of God and the glory of God will fill the entire earth. This is the gospel that was promised in the Holy Scriptures beforehand that Paul is saying has, is, and will come true through Jesus. So it's these sorts of, and we can look at a a million different prophecies and, and promises that the prophets made, and it's those sorts of things that we have to keep in our mind to ask ourselves, how is it that Jesus is making these things come true? Or that these things are and will be realized because of and through Jesus. Because if we make the gospel simply a means for you to have a better afterlife, ah, I'm afraid you're just not going to find that. Not in the Old Testament for sure. And only in the New Testament if that's sort of the lens through which you're reading the New Testament. But if the lens through which you're reading the New Testament are the promises and the scriptures of the Old Testament, which is how they were designed to be read, then you'll see that what God has in mind is way bigger than you. And it's way bigger than just a, a peaceful afterlife. It is, it is epic. It is global. It is that God is right now bringing together a covenant people that he is loving and saving and redeeming and that he will spend eternity with, that he will literally raise from the dead to be his covenant people forever. And that is what he's doing, not just what he will do, but what he is doing right now. And Paul eventually, when he gets to, and I know we've spent an entire quarter now and we still haven't gotten to the application portion of this book, but he has, you have to understand That the application, when he gets into Romans 12, that's really where the application starts. When you get there, you have to have a solid theological base that says, why in the world should people that are Jews and Gentiles or any other racial groups or cultural groups, different political beliefs and, and views and ways of living and backgrounds and ethnicities and all different kinds of human beings. Why in the world should all of us come together and be family and be a covenant family? And why in the world should Jews, who have always sort of had an exclusive claim to God and covenant relationship with God, why in the world should Jewish people make room for Gentile people like most of us? in the family of God, right? That's what this entire book is about, is why should Jewish people set aside their culture and their background and their law? Because for them, how you become a part of the covenant people of God and how you're included in that family is all about whether or not you keep the law. The law is the basis of whether or not you can be covenant family. So if you're not circumcised and you don't keep the law and you don't keep the the holy days and you don't eat the right food and you don't observe all of these tenets of the law, then you're not in, right? Because the law has always been the basis of whether or not you're covenant family. And now all of a sudden Paul's saying it's not the law. It's faith in Jesus Christ. That the law was a temporary measure 
And now, now that period of time has passed. And now Jew and Gentile can be part of the covenant family of God. This huge, epic, global family covenant group that God is putting together and that he considers them all righteous, not on the basis of the law, but on the basis of faith in Jesus. So we said Romans 1 through chapter 5, Romans 1 through 5, at least the first part of chapter 5, that God displayed his righteousness this way. Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, died for Jewish and non-Jewish sinners so both might be in covenant relationship with God and inherit the world promised to Abraham. Okay, so that's chapters one through five. That's what it's about. That's, that is the gospel that God put forth Jesus to be a sin offering so that he could make Jew and Gentile righteous and so that we could inherit the world that God promised to Abraham. Now, latter part of verse 5, we said this, because he introduces this, this idea in verses 12 through 21. Through the trespass of Adam, the whole world suffered under the reign of death. And remember, we talked about death, and we talked about uh, that... I don't know if you grew up like I did or heard the same sermons in Bible classes I did, but I was always taught that death meant separation. And that's one way, I guess, to look at it, but I don't think that's an intuitive way, and I don't necessarily see that in Scripture, that, that death means separation. Death means the end, right? Death means finality. And that was, that was our despair, our hopelessness because of sin, because we all joined in our father, Abraham, or father Adam's sin, uh, we all suffered under the reign of death, but through the righteous act of Jesus, through Jesus' act of dying on the cross, grace now reigns, and the result is life for the age to come, eternal life. And then Romans chapter 6, we talked about last week. So baptism means the end because we're dying with Jesus, right? That's what baptism is. Baptism is an end to living under the reign of death because it is piggybacking on Jesus' death. So baptism means the end of living under the reign of sin and death and the beginning of living under the reign of grace, which results in obedience and sanctification and life. Paul walks through chapter 6 and he lays it out that when you live under the reign of grace, then you live a life of obedience and, and sanctification, like getting holier, like getting better and becoming more and more of an instrument, an unusual instrument for God, and eventually life, right? And that's what's, that's what's happening in us because, not because we live under the threat of death, not because we live under the law, but because we live under the reign of grace, we're living as different kinds of human beings. Now again, that doesn't mean perfect, but it does mean changed. And if it doesn't mean changed, then, then it's, not, it's not the gospel, right? It, because the gospel is supposed to change us. And if we really, we talked last week about, you know, life being like a train and the, the end is like a, a pit, you know? I mean, the, the bridge is out and the train's going over the edge and the only way to get off that train is to die. And we did get off the train. How? By dying. By dying with Jesus. And because we piggybacked on Jesus' death, and we were united with him in his death, and because of his resurrection, now we are, are here, still living in the flesh, pre-resurrection, pre-resurrection of our bodies, but living with resurrected spirits. So we're living in newness of life. 
And it has to mean a changed life. We can't go back to the way we were living before. At least that would be obviously counterintuitive. You have the power to go back to living as you were before. So, now listen, now we're going to get into Romans 7. And I've been dreading Romans 7. Maybe that's why it's taken me so long to get here. But I've been dreading Romans 7 because when I read Romans 7 by itself, I have one take on it. And when I read Romans 7 within the context of reading everything else, I have a different take on it. And that's a, that's a clue that you probably shouldn't read it by itself, right? And you know me, that's how, I, I mean, I, I, oh, the Bible is so much better when you sit down and you read a whole book. It just, it's so much better. And when you read Romans 7, you think, you think Paul's just talking about, and maybe he is, and there's a lot of good commentators that know way more about scripture and God than I do, but that, that take that, that sort of stance that Paul is talking about his current struggle with sin and, you know, hey, I, I'm, I'm, I'm messed up too and I try to do the right thing and I don't do it. And, you know, maybe that's what he's talking about. But that doesn't fit with Romans 6 and it doesn't fit with Romans 8. Because Paul is talking about, in Romans 6, he's saying, listen, should we go on sinning so that grace increases? No, listen, when you died with Jesus in baptism, I mean, that's, that triggered a change. You're, you're no longer living under the reign of sin and death. Now you're living under the reign of grace. And then in chapter 7, he really gets into that, the aspect of the law. And he said, at the end of chapter 6, he said that, that grace, rather than living under the law, makes for a life that is no longer obedient to sin, right? When you were living under the law, that was one thing, and now you're not, you're living under grace. Because gratitude leads us to present our bodies, every member of our body, our fingers and our toes and our mouth and our eyes and every other part of our body to God for righteousness. Now, look at Romans 7 and verse 1. It says, Or do you not know, brothers... For I am speaking to those who know the law, okay? So that would be what group of people? The Jewish people, right? You know, those of you that know the law, you know this. And he's going to make an argument about the law. So this is, again, you have to remember the the entire book is about getting Jews and Gentiles to get along with each other. And for them to understand that this is God fulfilling his promises. For you not to live under the law of Moses, but for you to live righteous and holy lives that are in covenant relationship with God as multinational, multi-ethnic, multicultural people all living together in one family. That's the goal and the promise of God that he was always going to do that, okay? And so everything he says is within that context. He says, now, those of you that know the law, you know this, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he, what? Lives. And just like in the last chapter, he was making the argument that sin that you are under the reign of sin until you die, right? And as long as you live, you're under sin. But when you die, obviously, you're released from that. And he says the same is true with the law. You're under the law as long as you live, right? Now, for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage, right? So if, if, She's married to a person, they have a covenant, and, you know, that, that's binding as long as he's alive, and if he dies, then it's different. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law, and if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Now, this isn't really a, a text about marriage and divorce. It's simply saying, under the law, you understand this, right? You understand that if there's a woman and she's married to a man... 
and he's still alive, she can't get married to another guy, right? And that's just the way it works. We all know that. We, we understand that. And he's making an argument about the law, right? Because he says, verse 4, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law, right? It's the same argument that he's carrying over from chapter 6. Because what happened when you were baptized? You what? You died, right? You died. You got off the train. Everything that was connected to that life, you, you died. When you were buried with Jesus in baptism, you're, it, it's like you're a totally different person now. You're a different person. You're, you're living in newness of life. And what was binding on you and what you were a slave to before, that's gone, right? It's just like in marriage. If there's a woman and she's married to a man and, and he's still alive, that's her husband. But if he dies... Now she's free, right, to marry somebody else. And, and he says, listen, you were married to, like you were the woman, right? Or no, no, I guess you, you were the man. And you were married to this woman. And you can't have two spouses at the same time. And he says, now, listen, when you were baptized, you died to the law through the body of Christ so that you might belong to another, to him who is raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. So now... To whom are you legally bound? Jesus, right? You, you were legally bound to the law before, but now you've died, and now you're legally bound to Jesus. Now, if you hadn't died, well, then you, you couldn't be under both, right? You couldn't be legally bound to both the law and to Jesus, but now because you went through the, the water of baptism and you piggybacked on Jesus' death, and now you've been raised to live a new life, now you're, you're not bound to the law anymore. You're bound to Jesus. And, and he's, he's making the application not just to one person, but to, to all y'all, you know, to everybody. Saying, listen, listen, I, I know, I know. Your whole life, you've lived your life and you've said the law, the law, the law, the law, the law, and keeping the law and my bondage to the law, my being a slave of the law, me doing what the law tells me to do. I, I'm going to be obedient to the law. And Paul knows this better than anybody, Right? I mean, he was circumcised on the eighth day. He was a, a Jew of Jews. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I mean, he lived the law. And they would see that as being the reason they were confident of their covenant relationship with God. But Paul's saying, listen, when you were baptized, you died. You died. Now it's a different, it's a different life that you're living. Now you're living a life, as he would say in Galatians 2, verse 20, right? I've been crucified with Christ. I don't live any longer. Now, this life that I live is the life of Jesus. I'm living as a part of the body of Jesus. This isn't my life anymore. It's his. And the things that I was bound to before, I'm not bound to anymore. So he says, verse 5, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Now, it's kind of going to get a little bit complicated, and this is why I was kind of dreading it. But So he says, the, the law did what? It aroused what was there in our passions, right? And, and what was the, the fruit of that? Death, right? Here's how I've tried to be, man, I've been racking my brain, trying to come up with metaphor, and, which is rough because the whole this whole argument is a metaphor, but, but what if, I mean, think about it this way, maybe. Think about it like, like a bridge. I always think about model bridges. I don't know why, but, but I mean, think about a, a bridge, 
And think about like testing the bridge to see if it can hold weight, right? And you put weight on there, and if there are deficiencies in the bridge, the weight is going to help or hurt the bridge. It's going to hurt it, right? But is it, the, is it the fault of the weight that's testing it? No. It's the deficiency in the bridge. And Paul says, listen, in us, we've got these passions and these desires. He, he talks about it as flesh. It doesn't mean skin. If you were in my being human class a few months ago, you know that when Paul talks about the flesh, it, it's a metaphor. Yeah, it does mean skin. But, but it's a metaphor to talk about our weakness Our weakness physically, that we're flesh, like we're dirt people, you know, we came from dirt and we'll go back to dirt. We're we're mortal, we're we're fleshly, we're, you know, perishable. But it's also a metaphor to talk about our our corruptibility, our 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 lack of strength, our weakness. And because we're we're weak, then when the law came about, it aroused these passions in us. It wasn't the law, it was sin. It was sin that was in our flesh. But the law, it aroused it. It, it. it inflamed it. It revealed it. So he says, Our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now, listen, but now, you've got to carry all of this further down when we get to this latter part of the argument. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Now, I mean, man, if you were Jewish, right, and Paul is saying this stuff, you're like, whoa, dude, what are, what are you saying right now? I mean, come on, man. I mean, you're talking about our culture and our background, our law. This is from God. And you're saying, what are you saying? Are you saying that it's the law's fault that we're that we were sinful and that we do bad stuff? Are you saying that's the law's fault? Are you saying the law is bad or wrong? No, of course that's not what he's saying. But he's saying now, now living under the reign of grace and not under the, the written code, living by the Spirit, now sin, the law, death, all sort of lay off to the side. Now, <laughs> When, what shall we say then? Verse 7. What shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, see, I mean, again, he talks about sin. Sin is something you do for sure, right? Sin is like a rebellion and doing what you shouldn't do. But the way Paul talks about it in these chapters, 5, 6, 7... He talks about it as if it's personified, like it's a monster, like it's this being, right? Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I mean, think about it. I think about it this way. When, when my kids are hurt, and maybe you've played this game because my parents played this game with me, but when, when I got hurt, you know, and I was just, <laughs> you know, my knee is all scraped. And my parents would tell me, don't think about purple elephants, okay? Don't, whatever you do, do not think about purple elephants. Don't think about purple elephants with pink polka dots. Don't think about p- purple elephants with pink polka dots. Now what was I thinking about? 
Same thing y'all are all thinking about right now, right? Purple elephants with big boogers. When somebody says, don't do it, well, now that's all I want to do, right? I just want to do that, right? And, and I mean, and we go back to the garden, and it's such a perfect picture of what, what happens with humanity. I mean, you're hanging out, you're eating the fruit, you're just being, you know, I love it, this is great, and we've got animals, and we'll name them, and we'll just enjoy life, and everything's great. And hey, that tree over there, you see it? Don't, don't touch it. Don't even go by it. Don't eat from it. Don't eat from it. Whatever you do, don't eat from it. That's the only rule. Everything else, just do whatever you want to do. Well, now what do you want to do? You know, I mean, it's not, now the only thing I want to do is eat from that tree, right? And sin, in this case, the serpent, Satan, sees the opportunity that the commandment gave him, and he took that opportunity to deceive, to lead us astray. And that's what's happened. That's what happened with all of humanity, Adam. And that's what happened with the Jews. That's what happened with each individual Jew. That's what the law does. But it's not the law's fault. It's not because the law is bad. It reveals in us our own weakness. Because of our weakness and the sin that dwells within us, that weakness that dwells within our, our flesh, the weakness of our flesh, that sin takes the opportunity by and through the commandment in order to produce that sin. Produce, in this case, he uses as an example, covetousness. Now, I think we can see it in these verses, although it gets a little bit harder as we go on. I mean, Paul isn't really talking about himself, right? And can we see that? I mean, he's, he's using himself as an example. He's saying, now listen, at one time, I was alive, and you know, everything was great, and I was fine. And then somebody said, hey, the law says don't covet. I wouldn't have even known what coveting was if it wasn't for the law. Well... I mean, there probably wasn't literally a time in Paul's life where he didn't know the law. I mean, he was circumcised when he was eight days old. He'd always known the law, his whole life. He's just saying, as Jewish people, this is what is true of us as a people. That we wouldn't have known what it was to to covet or not covet if that law hadn't come. But because the law came, it revealed our weakness. It exposed our weakness. And sin took advantage of of the law and the commandment, and it produced in us sin, rebellion. And then that gave birth to to death, right? Verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law... Is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It wasn't, it wasn't the law that brought me death. You can't say the, the wages of the law is death. That, that's not right, right? The wages of what? Sin. The wages of sin is death. But it was the law that exposed that weakness in me. It was the law that sin took advantage of in order to produce in me, irritate in me, arouse, there's a good word, arouse in me the desire to do that which I wasn't supposed to do. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. 
And we've kind of touched, Paul's touched on this up to this point a couple of times, and we've mentioned it sort of in passing, that, that Israel would become the place where it's sort of a, a petri dish, right? Of sin, rebellion. And why should these people that have God's law, the only people on the planet that God has revealed himself to in this special way and made us this kind of special covenant with and gave these specific commandments and law, why should this people be the ones that crucify God when he comes and visit them? Is it because they were any worse than anybody else? No. They were human beings, just like all of Adam's descendants. But because the law did what it was supposed to do, it it showed us, it revealed how sinful sin was. It's like, it's like a weight on a, on a model bridge. You put weight, I mean a bridge that doesn't have any weight on it, you don't really know what it's made of. You don't know if it's going to hold anything or not. You don't know how strong it is or weak it is. But you start putting weights on it and you know. And these were the people that God put the weight on. God gave the commandments to. Why? so that sin could be exposed, so that we could look at it, so that all could kind of be accumulated in one spot. And that one specific spot that it was eventually accumulated in was the cross, right? It was dealt with by Jesus. The way the prophets usually put it, or put it a lot of times, there's all different kinds of ways to talk about this concept, but the ways the, the prophets talked about it a lot was like a cup. And Jesus talked about it that way. It was a cup. And that when people rebel against God and hurt each other and do what we ought not to do when we're sinful and wicked and we exchange the glory of God for the glory of created things, then we fill up a cup, right? And it comes to a point where the way the, way the prophets would talk about it a lot of times is that God would pour it out on a people. And it would, it's, like it's, it's like it's alcohol in that it makes them drunk. And what do you do when you're drunk? You, you step... I don't mean you, hopefully you're not. But anyway, uh, what does a person do? They they stagger around, right? And and, and that staggering, it's like somebody punched them. It's like somebody beat them up. And they're staggering around. And God's saying, that's what's going to happen to you. You're going to stagger around like you're drunk, but it's because you've been beaten. It's not because God wants to beat people or pour out his wrath on them. It's their sin. It's... It's the wily coyote thing. We've talked about that, haven't we? It's, it's our sin that gets given back to us. And we stagger as if drunk because it just knocks us down. And that's what happens. But, but instead of God pouring his cup out on everyone who deserved it, Jesus drank the cup. In his flesh, he didn't want to drink it. Please, Father. Let this cup pass from me. But he drank it. Why? Because God so loved the world. He didn't want to pour the cup out on everyone. He he drank it himself. He drank all of our sin and all of our rebellion. Okay, And that's what the law did. The law exposed it and revealed it and brought it to the surface and filled up the cup so that Jesus could come and on behalf of all those who put their faith in him, Jesus could drink the cup on our behalf. That's one way to put it. Another way to put it is in the sacrifice way, to say Jesus is the high priest who offers himself as the lamb to make atonement for all of our sin. However you want to put it, it's us. 
It's our sin and it's our rebellion. And the law exposed that. And, and Paul's saying, listen, the law was good. It did exactly what the law was supposed to do. It was holy and it was righteous. But listen, you don't want to live under that anymore. Do you know what that, do you see what that causes? You see how we act as human beings under the law? Where were we? 13. Okay, verse 14. For we know, 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm of the flesh, sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, again, I I mean, Paul hasn't, I don't think, like, suddenly shifted gears, and now he's, like, talking about his own, like, messed up state. I I think he's just, he's still using himself as an example to say this is, this is what happens when, when you put human beings that are sinful in their flesh and they're weak and you put them under the law, it's a deadly combination. It's a deadly combination when you take weak human beings and you put them under the law. This is how we behave. This is what we do. Because in our flesh, we're sold under sin. And, and when you're under the law, it's a, it, it, that's how you, you behave, even though the law itself is spiritual. He says, verse 16, now if I do what I do not want, well, even back in 14, sorry, for I, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. What, what is the thing that he wants? Wants to do the right thing, right? He's like, I'm, I'm a Jewish guy. You're Jewish people. We understand this. We, not that we want to do the bad things. We want to do the good things. We want to do the right things. I want desperately to do the right things. But because of my weakness, I end up doing the very things I don't want to do. I, when I do what I don't want to do, I agree with the law that it's good, right? I mean, I'm not arguing that it's, oh, yeah, well, that thing I did, I committed adultery or I lied or I coveted or whatever. It's because coveting is actually a good thing. No, by not wanting to covet and say, I, don't, I really don't want to be a covetous person. Then I'm agreeing with the law. The law's good right? I agree with the law. The law is good. Don't covet. That's a good thing. I shouldn't covet. But then I end up coveting. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Remember we talked about Ezekiel 36 on Sunday about that heart of stone, the transformation. I can't do it because of the weakness of my flesh. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I don't want is what I keep doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And he says in verse 21, I'm running out of time. So I find that it is a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Do you see? It's a battle. For whom? For the person that's still living under the law. Right? That's who it's a battle for. That's who he's describing is the person that lives under the law. He's describing the the way it was for him, yeah, but, but for all Jews. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? From this rat race? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. He's not saying, like, I live this dualistic life where, hey, over here, you know, in my flesh I still do what I want to, but over here with my mind I still do the good thing. That's not what he's saying. He he goes on, chapter 8, he says, listen, you're not under the law of sin and death anymore. You've been set free. 
so that in your spirit you can serve God. That way of living in the flesh, you know what it leads to and how it ends. That, that way of living in the flesh, that thinking that a right relationship with God is the result of circumcision. Talk about a fleshly way of thinking and living. He says, listen, here's, here's the new way of living. Jesus has set us free. So here's, here's my summary real quick. Under the law, man cannot serve God without condemnation. This is going to lead us to chapter 8 and verse 1. Under the law, man cannot serve God without condemnation because of the sin and death that dwells in our flesh. But Jesus sets us free from that hopeless state so that now we can live under the reign of grace and serve God. Serve God. Even though we still live in the flesh, we have a choice now. We don't have to live by the flesh and live out the desires of the flesh. Let's say a prayer. Most Holy Father, Lord, we thank you for setting us free. Help us to be a people, Father, who live under the reign of grace, who out of gratitude to Jesus serve you in our mind and with our spirit that our members of our bodies might be presented to you as instruments of righteousness, knowing, Father, that we are in a right relationship with you because of what Jesus has done, because of his righteous act. Thank you, Father, for setting us free. Thank you, Father, for making us yours. We pray that you bless us in our efforts to serve you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.